In the year 945, the primary chronicle of the Kievan Rus relates that the Grand Prince Igor, then ruling over a sprawling confederation of loosely unified pagan clans, centred upon the wild river systems, forests and steppe lands of Eastern Europe, made his annual trip to the court of one of his subject Slavic tribes, the Drevlians. It was a trip that he had done year in, year out, since he first rose to prominence amongst the Kievan Rus several decades before. Upon his arrival, however, rather than having the customary tribute and taxes ready for him, the Drevlians instead overpowered his retinue, disarming the Grand Prince and dragging him kicking and shouting off into a nearby woodland. Now alone, surrounded by hostile warriors eager for his blood, and miles away from any sort of aid, Igor probably realised what was about to happen to him. Perhaps he made peace with his gods before meeting his end. When his captors brought him to his place of execution, however, probably an ancient grove long associated with the forest gods that the Slavic peoples of Eastern Europe had worshipped for time immemorial. Even Igor, who himself had accrued an impressive reputation for ruthlessness and cruelty, was in all likelihood surprised and horrified at the particularly grim punishment that the Drevlians had reserved for their hated overlord. Ahead of him in the clearing were two fully grown and extremely tall bent over birch trees, awkwardly and unnaturally staked down to the ground through much effort by the Drevlian warriors. As Igor gazed around at the grisly scene before him, perhaps spotting specks of red on the forest floor and the trees above, the telling evidence of previous sacrificial victims. Even he was probably horrified at this end that his gods had reserved for him. Perhaps he struggled to fight his captors in a last forlorn hope of getting away. Yet nonetheless, they pushed him ever onwards towards the birch trees, tying the Grand Prince down to each trunk against his last ounces of strength, before finally fixing him into place. After an agonising few moments and a brief few words said to the forest gods, they promptly released the trunks to straighten back to their original position, tearing Igor limb from limb amidst agonised screams. Back in Kiev, meanwhile, Igor's very capable wife, Olga, went about her daily business, overseeing much of the governance of the large yet fragmentary state that her husband and his predecessors had ruled over with an iron grip since their ancestors first emerged from the fjords of Scandinavia over a century before. When she heard news of what the Drevlians had done, however, she might have been forgiven for yielding to this already powerful tribe. In fact, this is exactly what they thought she was willing to do, agreeing to marry their ruler, who probably assumed that he would then take over the position of Grand Prince as a result, thus ending the Kievan Rus before it ever really got started. Over the coming months, however, not only did Olga destroy the entire ruling class of the Drevlians, through a combination of burning some alive in a bathhouse, burying others alive in shallow graves, and finally having her warriors kill the rest in battle, but she also allegedly destroyed their capital city entirely, leaving only a few survivors to be enslaved or dispersed amongst the other tribes. In the aftermath of this quite ludicrously brutal killing spree, there could be little doubt throughout the realm anymore. There would be no usurpation of power. Olga would firmly remain as the regent of state, 
and its de facto ruler. Officially, however, the title of Grand Prince had passed to her young son, just three years old at the time of his father's death. Yet, as time would tell, every bit as ruthless as his mother. His name was Svatislav, later eulogised as the Brave, and it was under him that the sprawling confederation of tribes known as the Kievan Rus would, in all but name, transform itself into an empire, annihilating scores of established powers in the region in the process, and ruthlessly attacking others until he was finally killed in battle at the age of just 30 in 972. The brutal manner of his coming to power remained with Svatislav for the entire duration of his life, resulting in a grim, hard man, renowned for his ruthless ferocity and never showing any hint of weakness until he was finally defeated in the last few years of his life. When Svatislav first assumed power in the early 960s, his realm stretched from Lake Lagoda on the edge of Scandinavia in the north to Kiev in the south. Upon his death, however, it stretched from the Volga in the east to the Danube in the west, from the Baltic in the north to the Black Sea in the south, encompassing all of the disparate peoples between. It was by far one of the largest and most powerful states in Europe at the time. Very little is known of Svatislav's first few years, which he seems to have spent in the second major city of the Rus, Novgorod, whilst his mother ruled as regent in Kiev. The chronicle relates that he was tutored by a Varangian named Asmud, probably meaning a Scandinavian. This tradition of employing hardened Scandinavian warriors as tutors for the sons of ruling princes survived well into the 11th century, long after the Rus converted to Christianity and began to peacefully integrate into the social and political system of the Eastern Roman Empire. Upon reaching maturity by around 960, Svatislav assumed the reins of power, with his mother probably still running matters of bureaucracy behind the scenes. Whilst Olga had converted to Christianity towards the end of her life, acting as a forerunner of the latter conversion of the entire state to Eastern Orthodoxy, the religion of the Eastern Roman Empire, Svatislav remained resolutely a pagan for his entire life, arguing, probably quite accurately, that his warriors would lose all faith in him if he converted. By all accounts, Svatislav had little time for matters of administration, preferring to spend his days travelling around his massive territory and that of his neighbours, along with his Drusina of warriors, roughly meaning company, essentially a large retinue of loyal elite warriors that he remained with at all times, in a state of permanent warfare. War wasn't just a pastime or a necessity for Svatislav, it was quite literally a way of life. According to the Primary Chronicle, the Grand Prince and his Dracaena carried no wagons nor kettles, nor even any tents, preferring to sleep under the stars with their saddles under their heads, and to live off the land rather than being weighed down with baggage trains or civilian camp followers. For food, they would simply raid the local countryside, hunt for game, and if absolutely necessary, butcher some of their weakest horses and roast their flesh over a fire. These later accounts are further backed up by the eyewitness testimony of the Byzantine historian Leo the Deacon, who bore witness himself to the meeting between the Byzantine Emperor John Tzmiskis and Svatislav in the late 960s. According to Leo, 
Svatislav was a blue-eyed man of average height, but of stalwart build, much more sturdy than Tzmiskis. He shaved most of his blonde head and his beard, but he wore a bushy moustache and a sidelock as a sign of his nobility, bearing much more resemblance to a steppe Khan than a Scandinavian chieftain. He wore a single large gold earring bearing two pearls, and whilst he dressed in a similar fashion to his warriors and bore a great likeness to them, his garments were all white and immaculately clean, as befitted a prince. Svatislav's company, which was entirely self-sufficient in terms of logistics and very profitable in terms of expanding the state and gathering wealth, only grew in size and reputation over the years. And quite understandably, more often than not, the neighbouring tribes and clans would simply submit to the Rus rather than face the wrath of the Grand Prince and risk losing everything. Within just a few short years of his official coronation in 964, through a combination of fear tactics and outright conquest, Svatislav extended his control over the entire Volga Valley and the Pontic Steppe regions, bringing large contingents of experienced warriors under his banner in the process. The next item on the agenda, however, and one whose lords must have been watching the events on their western flank with varying degrees of panic and uncertainty, was one of the most prosperous kingdoms in the world at the time, the Khazar Khaganate. A confederation of semi-nomadic tribes and sedentary towns, ruled over by a Jewish aristocracy. Situated on one of the most profitable trading routes in Eurasia, dominating the very point where East meets West and North meets South at the western reaches of the Silk Road, since at least the 7th century, the Khazar Khaganate had long played a key role in the bustling commerce between China, the Middle East and Europe. As far as Svatislav was concerned, however, it didn't matter how big nor how prestigious this state was. One by one, tribe by tribe, formerly subject peoples of the Khazars were forced to either join the Rus or die. When one such people, the Vyachets, refused, the primary chronicle relates that Svatislav sent them a simple message in response, roughly translating as, I'm coming for you. The Khazar Khaganate didn't know what was about to hit it. The Khazars and their subjects weren't the only people on the agenda either. The Volga Bulgars, another powerful confederation situated just to the north of the Khaganate, didn't escape either, being either killed or incorporated into the ever-growing Rus state. In order to take on these highly formidable steppe horsemen, Svatislav seems to have employed August Turks and Pecheneg mercenaries in his campaigns. In 965, the Rus destroyed the important trading hub of Sarkov, as well as launching a lightning attack upon Kerch, situated in the Crimea. In a single year, destroying two of the most important trading towns on the Black Sea, and thus crippling the Khazar economy. Kerch was simply left as a ruin, whereas at Sarkov, Svatislav established a Rus settlement called the White Tower. Within just a few years, the Rus descended upon the Khazar capital at Attil, destroying it entirely and leaving it unoccupied for years to come. 
Within a matter of just a few short years, this revered and respected kingdom, a staple and major player of the region for centuries past, was utterly destroyed. Its cities razed, its people either incorporated into the Rus, killed or enslaved. By 969, after the last Khazar holdout, prosperous cities, the likes of which the region wouldn't see again for generations, were annihilated, it became increasingly obvious for all of the other major players of the region that a new power had arrived, catapulted into a position of immense power through the brutal strategies of its young and energetic ruler. The 10th century Arab travel writer Ibn Hakal reports that after the sack of the city of Samanda by Svatislav, he did not even bother to permanently occupy the Khazar heartlands north of the Caucasus, preferring to leave them in a chaotic mess. He didn't need their lands, he simply needed them to not be major players anymore, so he could replace them as the new master of trade in the region. Finally, on his way back to Kiev, the Rus chose to strike against the Ossetians and forced them into subservience too. Khazar successor statelets continued their precarious existence in the region but never regained anything like their former glory. The destruction of Khazar imperial power paved the way for the Kievan Rus to dominate north-south trade routes through the steppe and across the Black Sea. The routes that formerly had been a major source of revenue to the Khazars would now see that wealth flood into Kiev. Rather than being an idea originally thought up by Svatislav, however, the annihilation of Khazaria may have actually been suggested by the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire, who had previously concluded an alliance with Svatislav's father, Igor, in 944, shortly before his murder, and may have sought to use the Rus to remove the Khazars from the equation and thus bring the lucrative trade links of the Silk Road into Constantinople. The close military ties between the two powers are evidenced by the existence of a detachment of Rus warriors, accompanying the Emperor Nikephorus Phocas during his victorious naval expedition to Crete in 961. Faced with renewed Bulgarian offensives into Imperial territory in the Balkans, in either 967 or 968, Phocas dispatched an ambassador to invite Svatislav to attack Bulgaria in return for a vast sum of money, and potentially to join the Byzantines in a multi-pronged war of conquest against the Bulgarian Empire. Needing little persuasion, Svatislav was paid £15,000 of gold and set sail with an army of 60,000 men including thousands of Pechenegh mercenaries, fierce mounted warriors from the Central Asian steppeland. Not only did they entirely defeat the Bulgarian ruler Boris II after descending upon the Balkans with tens of thousands of elite warriors, but they then proceeded to occupy the entirety of northern Bulgaria, whilst threatening to keep expanding to replace the Bulgarians as the major threat to the north of the empire. Svatislav was now far more powerful than his father had ever been, and his father had attacked Constantinople directly on a number of occasions before peace was made. Now fearing the monster that they had partly created, 
The Byzantines subsequently attempted to turn yet another neighbouring people against each other and bribed the Pechenegs to attack and besiege Kiev, where Olga still resided, along with Svatoslav's young son and heir, Vladimir. The siege was promptly relieved by Svatoslav's general, Pretich, although Olga is recorded as having sent an angry letter to her son in the aftermath. He promptly returned and defeated the Pechenegs in person, though they continued to threaten Kiev in the years that followed. It was also at this time that Svatislav decided to move his capital from Kiev to Pereslaevitz in the mouth of the Danube, largely due to the great potential of that location as a commercial hub, also dividing his dominion into three parts, each under a nominal rule of one of his sons. The primary chronicle describes Svatislav as justifying the location of his new capital as being the place where all the riches will flow. Gold, silks, wine and various fruits from Greece. Silver and horses from Hungary and Bohemia. And from the Rus, furs, wax, honey and slaves. Upon his return to the Balkans, however, Svatislav flatly refused to turn his Bulgarian conquests over to the Byzantines, as previously agreed, and inevitably battle lines began to be drawn. In 970, at the head of a vast army that included large detachments of Pechenegs and Magyar horsemen, he invaded Bulgaria again, devastating Thrace, capturing the city of Philopolis and massacring its inhabitants. Nisiphorus responded by repairing the defences of Constantinople and raising new battalions of cavalry to combat the incoming steppe warriors. In the midst of his preparations, however, Nikephorus was overthrown and killed by a usurper and rival general, John Tismiskis, who then became the new Byzantine emperor. Though Phocas died in 969, before ever seeing the end of the devastating invasion that he had partly caused, his successor would be the one to finally bring an end to Svatislav's rampage. Just as panic gripped the streets of Constantinople at the news of the Grand Prince's approach, and civil war gripped the empire in Asia Minor, as another usurper, Bardas Phokas, rose up in revolt, Tuzmiskis dispatched his foremost general, Bardas Skleros, with the unenviable task of taking on Svatislav, who had laid siege to the important regional city of Adrianople. Yet the new emperor had a secret trick up his sleeve. An elite force of mounted noblemen, specifically raised to fight the Rus. He named them Immortals, possibly as a throwback to the elite fighting units of the Persian Achaemenid Empire of 1500 years before. Astonishingly, not only did Skleros defeat the Grand Prince for the first time in his life at the Battle of Arcadiopolis, but he also scattered the vast coalition comprising of Rus, Pechenegs, Magyars and Bulgarians. All it took was one defeat to shatter the image of the Grand Prince's invincibility. It was now just a matter of time before it all came crashing down around him. In the aftermath of Arcadiopolis, Svatislav gathered what forces he had left and retreated to the city of Dorostolon, where he was besieged for 65 days. Cut off and surrounded, he finally reluctantly came to terms with Skleros, agreeing to abandon much of his conquests in return for food and safe passage home. A number of historians have argued in recent years that this defeat was so devastating for the Rus that it partly instigated a cultural shift 
as the previously mostly Scandinavian warrior elite were practically wiped out, thus creating a power vacuum that needed to be filled by lower-ranking Slavic nobles. Svatislav had arguably been the first Slavic-looking Rus leader, resembling more of a steppe Khan than a Scandinavian warlord, and now the rest of the nobility all followed suit. As the Rus made their way back to Kiev, their once mighty army was devastated by famine, which reduced his numbers even further. Finally, as Svatislav, broken and defeated, attempted to cross over the Dnieper in 972, he was ambushed by a large force of Pecheneks under their leader, Khan Courier. And now emboldened by their own promises of riches from the Byzantines, who yet again sought to turn their barbarian neighbours against one another. It's unclear whether these Pecheneks had been a part of the Rus coalition, or whether they had remained independent during the years of Svatislav's supremacy over the tribes. But nonetheless, they now made it very clear that they were hostile to the Rus. The Pechenegs quickly surrounded Svatislav's men, killing the great prince in a bloody last stand in the waters of the river. And once dead, in a final insult to the once mighty grand prince, Khan Courier had his corpse decapitated and his skull turned into a drinking cup, which he would bring out at feasts for years to come. Whilst Svatislav's Balkan campaigns ultimately brought no lasting territorial expansion for the Rus, they did weaken the Bulgarian state and left it vulnerable to the attacks of the Byzantine Emperor Basil the Bulgarslayer four decades later. Following Svatislav's death, tensions between his sons gradually grew until war finally broke out between Oleg and Yaropolk in 976, leading to Oleg's death. In 977, Another of his sons, Vladimir, had fled Novgorod to escape Oleg's fate and went north to Scandinavia. There, he raised an army of Varangians and returned in 980 to reclaim his throne, killing Yaropolk and becoming the sole ruler of the Kievan Rus. It was Vladimir who would eventually convert to Christianity and send thousands of his soldiers to pledge their service to Constantinople in return for a marriage alliance with the emperor's daughter. This was the first time that a marriage of an imperial princess to a barbarian had ever been conducted. Those soldiers would eventually form the core of the elite Byzantine Varangian Guard, the elite fighting force that would form the core of the imperial army and bodyguard to the emperor for centuries to come. This is a brand new podcast, so if you like what you heard, the best way to help the show out is to leave a review on iTunes. This is the best way for new podcasts to grow, and for people to find the show. You can also find tons more historical material over on the History Time social media links. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you really like what you heard and want to help me to keep making new podcasts, videos and articles, then the best way to help is to become a patron 
at www.patreon.com forward slash historytimeuk. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me to keep making material, get sneak previews of what I'm working on, and gain the opportunity to vote on upcoming videos and podcasts. I'm Pete Kelly, and you've been listening to History Time. See you on the next one.